Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. I'm going to tell you a little something about my wife. She's, uh, she's a very, very generous person. She loves to give. Give just about anything. Hardly anything that she won't give to others. Uh, but I did learn early on in our marriage that, that there was one thing that she really didn't want uh, to share with me or anyone else. We were going out to breakfast and we got to the restaurant, ordered our omelets and orange juice and whatever. And the server came and said, would you like a cup of coffee? And she got a cup of coffee and, and I decided that morning I didn't want a cup, which if you know me at all, it's really weird because I drink coffee all the time. But I just, for that, for some particular reason, I decided I just don't really feel like a cup. And then her cup of coffee came and I thought, you know, I, I kind of would like a cup of coffee. And so I, I said, hey, can I just have a sip of your cup of coffee? She goes, no. <laughs> no, I mean, you like fire in her eyes. No. I go, no, really, just a sip. No, really, no. That's, don't touch, don't ask again for my coffee, you know? I was like, wow, okay, you know? And so now, almost 17 years later, we're, we're making a little progress. You know, once in a while, she'd give me a sip, not much, but, you know. Everybody has stuff that we don't like to share, right? Might be a possession, might be your money, might be your time at a particular moment where you say, no, that's mine. Hands off. Maybe it's because we really haven't gotten a hold of that concept of stewardship, right? That actually God owns everything. Maybe we think if we give it away, there won't be enough for us. If we give too much. Could be any number of reasons why we struggle to share, but share we must. Martin Luther once said, there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, mind, and purse. Of these three, the conversion of the purse is most difficult. Now, I don't, you know, he may have been exaggerating a little bit, but you may have noticed that in the Bible, there are a lot of discussions about money. There are actually about 2,000 verses that pertain to money. One third of the parables that Jesus taught related to money. Because God knew that there's something in our fallen human nature just doesn't really want to share. So this morning we're going to be looking at that question. How do we, how do we learn to share? And not just a little, not just a sip. But how do we learn to share and give generously? I want you to read with me from Jesus' words, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. To help us answer this issue of how we become generous people, I want to start with this question in particular. What happens to us when we don't share? Let's look at this from the negative. What happens to us when we don't share? And Jesus tells us the first thing that happens, and probably the most important, is that it displaces our worship. A failure to share and to give to others will allow wealth to take the throne of our lives, and it will 
displace our love for God. Read with me again chapter 6, verse 24, when Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Two things cannot occupy the ultimate place of devotion in your life. There's only room on that throne for one. And wealth has this strange, insidious way of working its way up to the top of our lives so that we eventually love it more than we even love God. Now, yesterday I had an opportunity to go duck hunting for the first time. My friend Terry Helsher took me and my son Benjamin and Brad Evans and his son Andrew. We went out duck hunting. First opportunity, I loved it. It was awesome. Blowing birds out of the sky. It was really cool. <laughs> Thing I'm going to start carving my own calls and growing my beard out a little longer. <laughs> Making my own dynasty, all right? It was awesome. I was awesome. Loved it. I was hooked. We're driving home and, you know, we're passing creeks and ditches and Brazos River, across over Brazos River and there are ponds here and there. And Brad said to me, he goes, hey, you're looking for ducks, aren't you? I said, I am. I am. You know, he said, once you kind of get hooked on something, your mind becomes a little preoccupied with it. Just like that. And then your heart is drawn away. When I used to rock climb a lot, I would, I'd look at everything. Think about how I could climb it, you know, up in Colorado, I'm looking at this hill, that hill, this rock, and how I could climb it. Come to Texas, there's none of that, so I'd sort of look at buildings. Now, how could I climb that building, you know? Like I'd climb some things on the church, nobody knows, but I'd, you know, just go around. How could I get up that wall? Because your mind gets pulled away, and then your heart gets pulled away, and you become preoccupied, and wealth is particularly powerful at knocking God off the throne, and occupying that first place, that first devotion in our lives. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul said, those who want to get rich, notice he did not say those who are rich. Wealth itself is not bad. It's not an evil thing. Money itself is not an evil thing. If you look at some of the most godly characters in the Bible, some of them were exceedingly wealthy. Abraham was a very wealthy man. David was a very wealthy man. He doesn't say wealth is bad. He says those who want to or long for riches fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Their love for money has shoved out their love for God and has caused them to actually wander away from the faith. Genuine believers. Wealth has a way of doing that. And so you'll notice if you study the whole concept of worship throughout the Bible, that there is always a component of giving in worship. There's always a component of physical and financial sacrifice that's involved in worship. Philippians chapter 4. Paul wrote to the Philippian believers who had just given him a financial donation for his ministry. And he said, I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That, that's, that's sacrificial terminology. That's, that's worship terminology. Paul says, your money was worship. God regarded it just like a, an incense offering coming up to him. It, it caused him to smile. 
Because fundamentally, God does not need our wealth, does he? Psalm 50 is a great illustration. God said, I own a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> In other words, figure of speech meaning I own every hill and every cow. I, if I'm hungry, I don't come to you and say, feed me because I own everything. I don't need that. But I'm going to talk to you a lot, God says, about wealth because it is a very good indicator of the position of your heart. How you spend your time and how you spend your money, these two most valuable commodities, indicate where our devotion is, where our heart is. And so God continually calls upon us to make sacrifice in our worship, not because he needs our money, but because he longs for our heart. Fully and completely devoted to him. Haddon Robinson once said, either we serve God and use money, We serve money and we use God. Yet, few Christians deliberately dedicate their lives to materialism. I like that line. Very few of us set out and say, you know, I'm going to believe that this earth is all that there is and I'm going to love it. Right? So we, we don't start that way. But wealth is deceitful, Jesus told us. And its bondage is subtle, like the flypaper in the fly. The fly lands on the sticky substance thinking, my flypaper, my coffee, right? Whatever. Only to discover that the flypaper says, no, my fly, my fly. And so the love of money can creep into our lives and it can displace our worship of God. Second, when we fail to share, when we don't share and give and give generously, it cultivates greed in our lives. Look with me again, chapter six, verse 22. And Jesus said, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Uh, That's a little confusing, don't you think? (laughs) A lot of figures of speech flying around there. What is Jesus talking about? Well, if the eye is good or healthy or, or quite literally single, that's a figure of speech for generosity. If your eye is good, you are generous, ready, eager, willing to share. If the eye is bad or worthless, the evil eye, that's greed. That's the green monster. So notice, he says, if your eye is good, that is, if you are generous, your whole body will be full of light. If you are generous, it will influence your entire character. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil or if it is bad, if it is worthless, that is, if you are greedy, if you cling to your stuff, then your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, greed will influence your entire character. Greed will influence your entire character. Greed means literally in Greek to have more. And if you want to have more and you pursue having more, then when you get it, you will want to keep it and you will not want to share. And if you don't want to share, it'll cultivate more greed and you'll want even more and you won't want to share the more that you get and it will be a downward spiral and it will undermine your very character. Third, when we don't share, it actually stimulates insecurity in us. It's one of the great paradoxes of wealth. The more you have doesn't mean that you will be more secure. In fact, some of the most wealthy people are some of the most insecure people. Again, I take you to Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us all things to enjoy. 
Paul says, don't set your heart on it. Again, he doesn't say wealth is bad, but if you fix your hope upon it, it is by its very nature an uncertain thing. It says in Proverbs, wealth has wings. It comes, it goes. You plan, your plans fail. And so if your hope is completely set on something that is by nature insecure, you will become insecure. It will undermine, actually, your security. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, there's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt. He has become less secure, not more secure. This last fall, I came across a great illustration of this. There's a gentleman who died. His name was Walter Samosco. He's from Carson City, Nevada. Uh, He passed away, and it was not discovered that he had died until he'd been dead a month. Some neighbors finally called the authorities and said, hey, you might want to check out this house. Uh, Not that the guy was in and out a lot. Matter of fact, he had lived there since the early 60s, and none of his neighbors knew him. And nobody knew him. He didn't go out hardly at all. He didn't have friends. People didn't come to his house. He lived this, you know, just really small little life. We went in, they found his body. They found that he had just a few assets. He had uh, a bike that sold at auction for $2, a saw that sold for $10.70, a wrench for $15. He did have a, a 1968 Ford Mustang, 17000 He had $1,200 in his bank account. He had saved a little bit for retirement, had about 165000 in retirement. But no one knew him. His life was just... This small little life. But when they went into his house, they discovered there was something else there. In uh, several crates uh, that were ammunition, old ammunition crates, they were completely filled with gold coins. $7.4 million worth of gold coins. I mean, the guy lived this tiny little life, but he was a millionaire seven times over. He did not enjoy any of that wealth. He hoarded it. And it made his life small. Now, it would have been great to be this lady. This is Arlene Magdon, San Rafael, California. She was a substitute teacher. The uh, city officials did a little research and they discovered that she was his only living relative. <laughs> Can you imagine that knock on your door? Uh, Miss Magdans, we have a delivery for you. Sure, come on in. Well, where do you want your gold, right? I mean, wow. It's in wheelbarrows, literally. They had to get wheelbarrows from the neighbors to bring in the gold. Wow. Now, I, I suspect her life changed. What do you think? Maybe for the better, but not necessarily. Very common when people come into wealth quickly and a lot of wealth quickly It's not necessarily a great thing in their lives. Is she going to take that wealth and say, my gold, I promise you that relatives are going to appear. My gold. Or will she become generous in giving? Will she see this as a gift from God for her to share? It's a fourth consequence when we don't share, it undermines our relationships. When getting and guarding wealth becomes central in our lives, it damages relationships. Heirs fight over the inheritance. Husbands and wives are nervous and have anxiety constantly about finances, and they fight and they bicker and they separate and divorce. When getting and guarding wealth becomes central, it will undermine and destroy relationships. 
And if we fail to become people who share and share generously, then getting and guarding wealth will become central in our lives. And our relationships will not be healthy because of it. In other words, what I'm saying is simply this. You can't afford not to give. You can't afford not to give. It will wreck your life. So let's look at the question from the other angle. What happens when we share? What happens when we actually choose to share? I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. A large portion of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers about an offering they have promised to give other churches that are really struggling financially and uh, dealing with poverty. And so he's talking to them about this particular offering that they have promised. If you look in chapter 8, verse 14, Paul says, At this present time, your abundance is a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Paul is saying, right now, God has physically and financially blessed you so that you can meet their need. And someday you may have a physical or financial need and they can turn around and meet your need. And that is why God has variously distributed wealth within the body of Christ so that we can share and help one another. First reason, we bless one one another. We can bless other people with our wealth. When we share, others can benefit. Notice what he says, chapter 9, verse 12. For the ministry of this service, particularly what he's talking about is this financial gift that you are giving, is not only fully fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Randy Alcorn wrote a a couple books on giving. One of them is called The the Treasure Principle. In it, he said, God has prospered us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Okay, Treasure Principle. Short little book. Last time I spoke on money, I recommended it. I cannot recommend it more highly. I like it because it's short, right? You can read it in maybe 20 minutes. But the principles are eternally significant. God has not prospered us to raise our standard of living, but our standard of giving so that we can share. We are blessed, not just to consume, but to be a blessing. So what happens when we share? We bless others first. Second, Our own character is transformed. Continue reading with me, chapter 9, verse 13. Because of the proof given by this ministry, that is your generosity, these other churches, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. That is, you're expressing your faith through your generosity and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. What Paul is saying is, God is is generous. And, And evidence of the character of God in you is when you become generous. Grace means that God gives to us. When we are impoverished, Christ transfers his riches to us. When we are separated and dead in sin, he makes us alive. When we are in bondage to sin, he frees us and makes us his children. His wealth becomes our wealth. He became poor so that we could become rich. God's grace means that God gives and he gives and he gives. And he gives and he gives to creatures who can give him nothing in return, really, that he needs. 
And yet he continues to give and give and give and give. God is generous. And when we become generous, we take on the very character of God. It transforms us. That's what Jesus meant in that parable. If your eye is good, if you are generous, your whole body will become full of light. Third, you honor eternal realities. I want you to turn with me to one of Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Now Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your stewardship, for you can no longer be the steward. The steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management or the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. That's a a little bit of a tricky parable, isn't it? What exactly is Jesus talking about? Let's unpack that together. Several principles. First, it is a reminder that we are stewards, not owners. We saw that in the parable last week. We see it in the parable again this week. This man in the parable is not an owner. These are not his assets that he's working with. He is working with the assets of his master, of the owner. And we need to get that into our minds. We don't own anything. All that we possess, either directly or indirectly, is a gift from God. Paul said, What do you have that you did not receive? But if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? All that you have, directly or indirectly, comes from God. Your body is a gift from God. Your mind, with with which you think and study and plan, that's a gift from God. All the assets, God allowed you to earn them with your mind and your body that he gave to you. All that you have, body, soul, mind, and spirit, is from God. We are stewards. Remember, we talked about it last week. This is God's home. This universe that he has created, this is his household. And within his household, we function not as the owners, but as the managers of God's assets. It all belongs to God. Now, second, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Read with me chapter 16 and verse 9. Jesus says, now I say to you, so he has turned from the parable itself and he's saying, here's the application point. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, the wealth of unrighteousness is the money of this world, which is not evil in and of itself, but it is attached to this world and consequently, it will fail. When you move from this economy to the heavenly economy, all of the wealth of this economy cannot come with you. It is absolutely and utterly worthless. God has no respect or honor for the currency of this earth, so you cannot take it with you. He doesn't care to see what you bring from earth into his heavenly realms. 
First Timothy 6, Paul said, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Job was a little less delicate. He said, I came in naked, I'm leaving naked, right? I didn't come in with pockets and I'm not going to leave with pockets. I can't carry anything with me. Solomon said exactly the same principle in Ecclesiastes. The currency of this earth is worthless in heaven. You cannot take it with you, but you can exchange it. You can send it ahead. Like traveling to another country and you show up with your dollars, you go to the exchange booth first and you translate it. You exchange it into another currency. Jesus says you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. Read with me again, chapter 16, verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, the wealth of this earth, which is not enduring, but is attached to this earth, So that when it fails, when you move from this earthly economy into the heavenly economy, when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, Jesus is not praising the unrighteousness of the unrighteous steward. But he's saying, that unrighteous steward, you can learn something from him because he thought ahead. He realized, wow, all of my master's assets are going to be removed from me what am I going to do tomorrow? I'm ashamed to beg. I'm not strong enough to dig. I need to plan ahead. And so he sent assets ahead of him, so to speak. Jesus said, there are the sons of this age. They're wiser than you are. I want you to be wise in the use of earthly assets. Send it ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Sigmund Freud told a parable, and and I honestly, I have no idea what his point was in the parable, but it really illustrates my point. So I'm going to use it, okay? He talked about a man who got stranded on an island. It's a really nice island, very lush, wonderful, beautiful island. There were natives there, and somehow he was selected to be king for a year. Great privilege. And so he's living it up. He's enjoying all the wonderful bounty of this island. And then one day it strikes me, he says, well, I'm only king for a year. What happens next year? So he asked the inhabitants of the island, so What's going on? I'm only king for a year. And they said, well, next year, you will be banished to that island over there. He thought, oh, that's not, I, I, that's not a good deal at all. What can I do? And so what he did was he spent the entire year working, not enjoying, just working. And he sent all of the wealth from this island onto the other island on which he would be banished so that he could enjoy it forever. That's what Jesus is saying. Send it ahead invest the wealth of this earth in eternal realities. What lasts? What lasts? God is eternal. And he has made men and women to live with him forever. God and people and nothing else. God and people and nothing else. And the wise steward invests everything he or she possibly can in God and people. In loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and going deep in God. In introducing others to God. In building them up in their faith. In sharing the gospel and giving your money, not just your time, to those who are sharing the gospel with others that you can't share the gospel with. 
so that the kingdom of God expands and grows larger and larger and larger because only two things last, God and people. Now I want you to think for a moment. Does God actually need our evangelism? Does God need our evangelism? The answer is no. Okay? The answer is no, he does not. God, we're not really very good at it. And you know, God could do it a lot more effectively. I mean, right at this moment, God could just start shouting from heaven. And he could be very convincing and persuasive. No one would be able to, to argue any issue against him. He, he'd have all the arguments wrapped in his fists and he could even throw in an earthquake or two, right? And then bring Jesus down and do a bunch of miracles as well. And I mean, he could really persuade very well. He could do evangelism. He could write it in the skies. Here's the proposition in, you know, in, in clouds or in stars or lightning or, I mean, wow. God could do evangelism a lot better than we can do evangelism. But he has chosen not to. Instead, he's chosen to say, no, I want you to use your time and your talents and your money to share the gospel. God doesn't need our money either, does he? No, he does not need our money. Remember, all the hills, all the cows, all the wealth. God doesn't need our money, but he has chosen to work through our generosity. He has chosen to do so. And so what we're talking about this morning ultimately is not sacrifice, but opportunity, right? God is inviting us to be wise and to invest our lives in all that we are in things that last forever, to plan ahead. I mean, you can't take it with you, but even if you could, why, why would you? Right? It'd be like bringing all your dirty socks to heaven with you, right? I mean, I imagine... You're standing at the pearly gates and there's Peter, which I, I really, I don't believe that actually happens. But imagine for the sake of illustration, there you are at the pearly gates and there's Peter. Yeah, okay, you know, you believed in Jesus. Come on in, right? And you show up there and you got a bag over your shoulder and Peter says, well, what, what do you got in the bag? Well, it's, it's my laundry. I didn't have time to do it. So I just thought I'd bring, I like my clothes. So I'd bring them with me. And Peter says, well, you know, we don't need, we don't need your stuff. We don't need your clothes here. So, well, all right, but I brought some gold with me too that I saved up. I put it in crates in my garage and gold coins and I I brought a few pieces with me and Peter says well you know look around we paved the streets with gold already we we just don't need your gold drop your bags naked you came into the world naked you will leave we will clothe you here but my question for you Peter says is what did you send ahead what did you send ahead Are, are there Are there people here who are ready to welcome you because you gave of your time and you gave of your skills and talents and abilities? You gave of your money so that they could be here. Those are the people who will be ready to welcome you, to throw the party for you because you live so wisely and well. Did you invest? I call that my my ERA, right? My eternal reward account. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And what Jesus is telling us is, of course we all have self-interest. That's just kind of part of humanity. But is your self-interest informed? Is it wise? Wealth is a test. Do you actually, really, genuinely believe in eternity? If you do, then you won't simply live for this life. Which is not to say we don't enjoy things on this life, in this life. But we don't live for it. Read with me chapter 16, verse 10. 
Jesus said, he who is faithful in a very little thing. In the context, what is the very little thing? What's the very little thing? Jesus says he is faithful in, a, in a, just a, this little, tiny little thing. That's earthly wealth. That's your gold. That's your possessions. Jesus says that's a very little thing. When compared to the wealth of eternity that I offer you, he was faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. He was unrighteous in a very little thing, that is, the one who's greedy and lives for self, he will be unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth or the wealth of this earth, who will entrust the true, enduring, eternal riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Do you really genuinely, deeply believe that someday you will be removed from this earth's economy and you will live forever in the presence of God. If so, then invest for it. Wealth is a test of your heart. David Livingstone, a missionary in Africa, once wrote, I place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by giving or keeping it I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes now in time and also for eternity. So, practically speaking, how do we invest? Let me give you a couple ideas. How should we invest well? Turn with me again to 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. A few principles for investing. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul, when advising the Corinthian church on their giving to the other churches that are suffering, chapter 16, verse 1, he said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. First principle of investing wisely is to do it habitually. So on the first day of the week, I want you just to begin to get in the habit Really, it could have been the second day or the third day. It's, that's really not what's relevant. The first day of the week for Paul was Sunday. And he said, so every Sunday, just set some aside so that you don't try to lay your hands on it later. I want you to get in the habit. Students, if you have never been in the habit of giving, this is a fundamental part of your worship. Just start. You have to start large. Just start. Create this as a, a habit of your lifetime whether it's a dollar or $5 or a quarter or 20 bucks, I would encourage you, do it weekly. Every week, set that money aside. Maybe you forget to bring it. Maybe you set it aside in a jar. Maybe you get online. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't carry any cash. There's no cash in my pocket, I understand. So maybe you get online and you give online. Some other creative ways that we're going to make available so that when the moment strikes you and God's calling you to give, you can give. But do it habitually. Great quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. So you're thinking about it this morning and you need to choose an act. And when you act, then act again. And when you act again, it becomes habit in your life. And that habit shapes your character so that you become a generous person. Your eye is good. And then your whole body is filled with light. It transforms you. And then you enter into eternity 
And they welcome you into their presence because you have lived wisely for the kingdom. So first, invest habitually. Second, invest sacrificially. Invest sacrificially. One of my absolute favorite moments in the Gospels is when Jesus is in the temple and the big religious guy comes in and he gives lots of money. Remember that one? He just gives lots of money and, and he makes a big show of it and his disciples are just, wow. They go, elbow Jesus. Jesus, did you see that? That's cool. Man, that guy is giving. That is, that is one spiritual man. And Jesus says, now look over here. I, th- I think you, you missed eternal realities. See the, w- the widow right there. She just put in two tiny coins. Jesus says, she gave more. You go, in whose economy? In an eternal economy. She gave more because God doesn't need our money. Right? He doesn't need our money. It is not the quantity. She gave sacrificially. She gave out of her heart. She gave because she loved. He gave for show. And so he got his reward in full when the disciples said, wow. That's it. Remember when David had to buy that threshing floor because a plague was sweeping through and he needed him to make an offering and he goes to the owner, Arauna, and he says, I want to buy this from you. And the man says, no, let me just give it to you. And here's the ox and take everything. And, and David says, no, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. I want to sacrifice. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, I'm frequently asked, um, what about tithing? Should I tithe? Remember, the tithe is, is 10%. Literally, it's, a, it's the first tenth. In the Old Testament, the Jews were advised, give that first tenth to the Lord. Crops come in, give first to the Lord. It was a reminder that God is first in our lives. It was a reminder that God owns everything, and so we give to him first. But the Jews didn't give just the tithe. There was also free will offerings. There were offerings to the poor. There was, uh, every seven years, debts were removed completely. When they uh, harvested their field, they would leave uh, extra grain around the outside for the poor. In other words, there were all kinds of things structured in their society so that they would become this generous culture. And so in the New Testament, it doesn't affirm or deny giving a tenth. It doesn't say, yes, give a tenth, or no, don't give a tenth. I would say, based on the Old Testament principle, a tenth may be a good place to start. But the point is that we grow into generous people, right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Notice again, he he attaches our, our financial gifts to God's grace, in us and through us. That in great, listen to his description of these churches in Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They were poor churches, but they were generous and liberal in their giving. For I testify, verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, 
begging us with much urging for the favor, the grace of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. These poor people said, please let us give. Wow. And Paul says to the Corinthian believers, shame on you for being so stingy. When you have a a genuine abundance of wealth, these churches had nothing and they begged that they could give. That was evidence of the character or the grace of God in their lives. So start somewhere, but make it your goal to become a person who loves to give. Give sacrificially. Third, give joyfully. Now you may say to yourself, wait wait a second, two and three kind of, that's a conflict there. Those are mutually exclusive, sacrifice and joy. I don't think so. Well, you men who are married, I want you to remember, I want you to remember back when you bought that engagement ring. It was probably a sacrifice. If you got married young, that ring probably represented a large portion of your net worth. I've known guys who worked second jobs. I've known guys who dipped into savings and depleted savings completely. I've got a friend who sold his fishing boat. And, you know, some of you are out there are probably saying, yeah, so like particular ladies, you go, yeah, <laughs> sold his fishing boat. Well, he was a big fisherman, hunter. He loved, I mean, he loved doing that. But when he sold his boat, he had absolutely no regrets. It wasn't duty to buy that ring. It was devotion. He loved this woman and he wanted to make her his own. And so he sold something that was dear and it looked dear to his heart. It looked like a sacrifice on the outside, but it was an expression of love. And so sacrifice and joy are not mutually exclusive. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 now, verse 6. Paul says, now, I want to remind you of this. He who sows sparingly, that is, he who gives grudgingly, God, just take a sip, will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So as I've said before, don't give like you're giving to the IRS. Give like you're giving an engagement ring. That's what God is looking for. Sacrificially, joyfully, habitually, and then forth wisely. God gives us some priorities in giving that are very direct. The first is our family. We are responsible to give to our family. We're told he who does not support his own. Paul says it's worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers understand that we take care of our own. If they have genuine needs, we are responsible first. Others aren't. We are. body of Christ is a family. And so we are responsible for the needy within the body of Christ, not just our physical family, but the body of Christ, maybe even neighbors, those in the community, if they cannot meet their own needs. That is why you see constantly, we looked at it in the book of James, God loves the orphan, the widow, those who cannot provide for their own. Those are two biblical priorities in giving. Third, missionaries. Give to those who are taking the gospel where you cannot go. So someday you walk into heaven and people you have not even met are there because you gave. Because you sacrificed joyfully so they could hear the gospel. That is a wise investment. When I think about missionaries that I want to support, I think, are they going to a strategic place where the gospel can go, where I cannot? Give to these people. And then fourth, give to your local church. 
that's, That's a biblical priority. Paul says in Galatians 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. You say to yourself, wow, like, that's the most self-serving verse in the uh, Bible that Brian could read. I can't even believe he put it on the overhead. Wow, the one who taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Who's taking me to lunch, right? Uh, I, I want to tell you, I promise I'm not asking you to give to me. That's not what, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not asking you to give to me. What I'm saying is, where you are fed and where you grow, you should give in that place. Students, when you leave here, while you are here, you should give here. And when you leave here, you should find a local church and you should give there where you are fed. It's a biblical priority. Now, I I will tell you, I I love this church. I love Grace Bible Church. And I don't love Grace because I work here. I work here because I love this place. And what I love about this place is for almost 50 years, the leadership of this church has remained true to the vision that God has called us to. The leaders have changed. The people who are, who are setting direction have changed, but they have always stayed true to what God has called us to. Teach the word. Believe that the word is living and active and powerful. And if you teach it, God will honor it. The grace of God. God loves us and unconditionally accepts us in Christ. And he is faithful to us in spite of our own unfaithfulness. We are secure in that. And that creates an atmosphere, a culture in which we can grow because we are secure in Christ. Missions. Take the gospel to people who haven't heard the gospel. Don't be an inwardly focused church. Be an externally focused church. God is not an American and he doesn't love America more. He may have blessed America so that America could be a blessing. Think world. Think the kingdom of God. Students and families worshiping together, growing together, is an incredibly powerful tool to get the gospel out to all nations. Students, you come here, and we love it that you come, and we want to pour everything we can into you. I want you to, to, to receive so that you can go out and you can influence others for the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere in the world. In between services, a couple of my former students came up, and I, I don't think I'd seen them in 10 years. We, we began to talk, and they said, you remember when we first got married, we moved to this town, and we called, and we said, there's no church here. We're really struggling. We're suffering. We're trying to find a place to worship. I said, well, why don't you think about starting something? So they and four other couples got together, and they started a Bible study, and then they started a church, and they have planted a church. You may go and you may influence an existing church to love the word of God and believe in the grace of God and to reach out to the world, or you may be called upon to start a church. We believe and we invest in students because that's what God's called us to. That's the vision of this church. And because of that vision, God has called us even locally to multiply and to give you a sense of what's been happening here at Grace Bible Church. In uh, 2008, we finally felt like God was saying, It's time to start a new site here in this community. So we found the Southwood campus and purchased it. And in 2008, we had roughly 2,500 adults, so 18 years and older, who were coming to worship. It's before we opened Southwood. So here at the Anderson campus, 18 and up, about 2,500 people, adults. When we opened Southwood over the last several years, it has grown to 5,000. So now on a Sunday morning, Adults, 18 years and up, who come to worship at Southwood or Anderson, there's about 5,000. We're we're pretty full. 
right now. You know, it's a lot of you folks, hey, back there, you know, it's uh, not the greatest seat, but come and you worship, we're full here. Uh, Southwood started with one service, about 200 people. Then that service filled up. And they took a leap of faith and they started a second service. Second service is now full. Last week they had 130 people sitting in the foyer watching a TV screen. We're full. I deeply believe that God is calling us to start again. Now in that same period of time, our attendance grew 100% and our budget grew 20%. It's just a reality. But because of this, we're not in a place where we can plant again. I, I feel with all of my heart that God is calling us to multiply again. Because we're full here, Southwood is full, but the community is growing. We're just scratching the surface on the number of students that we can reach. Community is going to grow even more. It's going to grow even more. We, we, we know it's going to happen. Chamber of Commerce is telling us, and we believe. right? It's, it's a growing community. I feel like God is calling us to start again and plan again. And what that means, I think, for us as a church is that we're at a moment when God is challenging us to give sacrificially. For the work of the gospel in our community, on the campus, plant another site that is kingdom of God oriented that can join us in planting another site and can send more missionaries and can put more people on the campus to reach more people for the gospel of Christ, to build them up in their faith so they can be sent out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we're about. And I believe God is challenging us right at this moment to sacrifice. So what does that mean for you? How much should you give? I have no idea. I don't know how much you should give. That's between you and God. You and God and your spouse if you're married. But I do think that God is challenging you this morning to think about eternal realities with your time, with your wealth, with your talents. I don't think any of us will stand in the presence of God and say, gosh, I wish I had spent more back there. I think we will all stand in the presence of God and say, I wish we had sent more ahead. I wish we believed a little bit more in eternity. I think we'll look into the face of Christ and realize how much he gave to us and say, I wish I had been even more grateful for what God gave me in Christ. I think that we will say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, which is Jesus. God, make us generous people. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray that you would tear out of our hearts the love of this world. I pray, Father, that you would make us wise stewards of all that you have given us. I pray that we would live for eternity, that we would invest in eternity. I pray, Father, that we would not give out of guilt or compulsion, but out of a deep sense of gratitude, knowing that Jesus gave so much, Jesus actually gave all. He held nothing back so that we could have life. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our indescribable gift. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord fill your heart with generosity toward others out of a deep sense of gratitude to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.